Welcome, everybody. Really nice to see you all again. For those of you who either weren't at the induction or weren't paying attention, um, I'll quickly introduce myself. I'm Charlie Beckett. I'm your head of department, and I'm also director of POLIS, which is the media think tank within your department. It's the LSE's media think tank. And POLIS is the host of these talks that we're giving every Tuesday for the next 10 weeks. And the purpose of these talks for the students in the room is to connect you to media practitioners and it's to connect the media practitioners to the research and the teaching that we do here at the LSE. Um, so these lectures are you know, primarily related to the course uh, that the students are doing here on media theories and concepts. Um, but these talks are an opportunity for you to hear these media professionals talk about the ideas behind their actual work and for you to think about how it might relate to your academic study. Uh, as I say, the talks are also open to the general public. So if there's anybody here who uh, isn't from the LSE, um, you are very, very welcome. Um, all the talks are recorded, and we're also going to be reporting them on the POLIS blog and through the other various POLIS platforms on Twitter and Facebook and so on. The format is very simple. Uh, the guest speaker will, will talk for about 30 minutes or so, and then they'll take questions. So think about uh, if there's something that occurs to you while it, you're being lectured at, keep a note of it and come back at the end with questions. Uh, our guest today, Mary Hockaday, is a, a tough journalist, so we'll take any kind of critical question you might have. And for those of you who are um, tweeting about this, uh, the Twitter hashtag is PolisBBC. And you're very much encouraged, of course, uh, to, um, to, to use social media to comment on these talks. Today's talks, I'm really pleased that we're starting uh, with somebody who in many ways represents both the tradition of journalism and very much its future. Uh, Mary Hockaday began working as a trainee at the BBC back in... Don't tell. Mm. <laughs> but although it was actually the same year that I started my career in journalism, although uh, it was in a rather less famous offices of the Croydon Comet for me. Um, Mary went on to work for BBC World Service as a correspondent out in the field internationally and as an editor of BBC World Service News in that incredible period between 2001 and 2006. She became head of the BBC Newsroom in 2007. In 2009, was given um, the, the absolutely massive task of bringing all the BBC's newsrooms under one roof. Now, of course, there are BBC newsrooms around this country and around the world, but Mary's job was to make sure that the BBC's core journalism in London physically reflected the multi-platform, multimedia world that we live in. So radio, TV, online, world service, domestic, they're all going to be integrated into a beautiful state-of-the-art newsroom which has been built alongside the BBC's historic headquarters in Portland Place. Now, when I was at the BBC um, back in the 1990s, the BBC made a, an incredibly far-sighted decision uh, to commit itself and a lot of resources to an online presence and to a digital production future. And it means that now, 
the BBC is both a global player in the internet age, but also a digital pioneer around things like public participation, interaction, and online innovation. And as Mary's going to explain, the BBC is different. It's both a great example of uh, just good journalism at its best, but it is, of course, also a public service broadcaster with a particular duty uh, to use journalism uh, for the benefit, if you like, of its audiences. And so that's why it's so important that she's kicking us off today when we are supposed to be thinking, well, why does media, and in this case news media, matter? So the question today that Mary must answer, if you like, is whether the organisational changes, you know, the architecture and the furniture that's moving around, um, can help the BBC both to perhaps retain its traditional qualities, but also to reinvent them for the new media environment. So please give a big warm welcome to Mary Hockaday from the BBC. Good evening, and uh, it's lovely to be here today. Thank you very much to Charlie and to Polis for inviting me. This is a fabulous lecture hall, and actually it makes me wish that I was a student here too, and doing the, the course and, and the lectures that you're attending. They sound fascinating. So, uh, as Charlie says, I'm Mary Hockaday, and I'm head of the BBC Newsroom. And I've come to you today from our new building near Oxford Circus, new broadcasting house. And as Charlie says, we're in the middle of a year-long migration of BBC News, our television, radio and digital services. And the move finishes next year when our final teams move from Television Centre in West London. And as many of you know, the BBC World Service, English and Language Services, who were based at Bush House, just over the road here, have already moved into New Broadcasting House. I'm going to talk about New Broadcasting House quite a bit today, but in the context not just of a glorious new building in the heart of London, but about what it allows us to do as journalists. I'm also going to talk about how, as the world presents new challenges, both in terms of the news agenda and audience expectations, the building will allow us to do what we do better. I'm going to address the question of what our journalism in this digital age should be and put forward my thoughts on how we can serve our new digital audiences and audiences on our traditional linear platforms by focusing on the bedrock of BBC journalism, accuracy, impartiality, and good storytelling. At BBC News, we're privileged to provide news coverage on television, radio, and digital services for very broad audiences across the United Kingdom, and global audiences too, both daily news and weekly current affairs and documentaries and so on. The multimedia newsroom, which is my patch, is responsible for the daily coverage including the news at 6 and 10 on BBC One, BBC Breakfast, the BBC News Channel, our online services on web and mobile, the summaries and the bulletins for several of the main BBC radio networks, and then also World News, our global television channel, World Service News in English, and our globally facing news website. First of all, though, I'd like to show you something of what we do. Are you happy to be back at school? The teacher asks. Yes, they shout. 
Are you afraid of anything, she adds. No. How do you feel in your country now? Do you feel safe at home? Before, he can answer yes. No. There's a loud thud of a shell. What about this, the sound, boom, boom? Oh, he says, it's far away. But actually, it's not that far. This is a government-supported, a government-defended neighborhood. But just across this highway, just on the other side a few streets away, while the children were singing school songs, clashes were going on. This neighborhood is divided, just like the rest of Syria. Well, the rebels have now moved up because the government's been trying to push into this area. It's a very confused situation. We know there are snipers all around here because it's an urban area. The sounds ring out. What you can't tell is which direction they're actually coming from. As you can see, the rebels are incredibly tense. In the east of the city, in an otherwise unremarkable neighbourhood, a small shrine to Mark and David Short, the father and son both murdered this year, Dale Cregan, suspected by police of being hired to help with the hits. A huge manhunt was launched for Cregan, who it suggested evaded capture, holed up behind a pub just a five-minute walk from where yesterday's murders occurred. This tiny shed was probably Cregan's hiding place for some weeks, Someone protected him. In Dorset, the GPs know there are big challenges ahead. They're taking over as the NHS faces up to the future. People over 80 are the fastest growing group in the population here. That means more elderly people living with long-term <coughs> health problems. The biggest challenge for the NHS. The question is whether the changes being made by the coalition to the health system will leave it better or worse equipped to deal with that. A journey through a frozen ocean transformed into slush. This is the high Arctic, where temperatures are rising and the ice is stirring. We approach the edge of a glacier. We need to be careful. Like many here, it's shedding great chunks of ice into the ocean. A million fragments fall like rubble. It's now beyond doubt that the Arctic is changing dramatically, with glaciers in retreat and the frozen ocean going through a record melt. And though this region is remote, it could have serious repercussions for global weather patterns thousands of miles away. So I chose these examples because they represent some of our best journalists doing some of our strongest work over the past few months. It's a range of stories that matter to us as a news organisation, but also that we know matter to our audiences. You saw Lise Doucette and Ian Pannell in Syria, brilliant and brave individuals who, with their teams, take huge risks to bring our audience not just the news but an understanding of a very complex and fast-moving story. You may have seen Ian Pannell's reporting from Aleppo yesterday, and if you didn't, I recommend it. It's on the website at the moment. Our home editor, Mark Easton, has the skill to articulate the mood of a place and a people 
He was in Manchester following the shooting of the two police officers there. Branwyn Jeffries was explaining complex changes in the health service, part of a day of coverage to help explain what's happening with the NHS. And finally, saw our fantastic science editor, David Shookman, this time reporting from the Arctic. He always brings a wonderful sense of adventure to his reporting, but his journalism is grounded in real expertise. All of them breaking news, telling stories, making sense of the world. And later I'll talk more about what makes this journalism great. But first, back to our new home. You can see New Broadcasting House, or New BH as I'll call it from now on, as you go up Regent Street from Oxford Circus and follow the curve of the elegant 1930s design of Old Broadcasting House to its impressive new extension. New Broadcasting House is a fantastic opportunity for BBC News. The new Director General, George Entwistle, described it recently as an assertion in glass and steel of our confidence in the future of the BBC. But he added, new buildings are only a means to an end. It's about the love of our audiences and the value that they place on what we do. The building is an exciting space. It gives us an opportunity to rethink how we work, to refresh how our radio journalism sounds and our television and online journalism looks. It's a moment to test ourselves. What are we here for? What do we want to do with the trust that audiences put in us? Hold fast to our fundamental principles, but innovate in how we express them in the journalism we do. Design a newsroom for the digital age. This is what we've come up with. Here it is, the new newsroom. Light, spacious and big. For the first time ever, we can bring together our global and our domestic news teams in one place. They already collaborate across buildings, and of course with our journalists in BBC Bureau around the UK and the world. But new BH means easier collaboration, easier discussion about stories, easier sharing of content and expertise. This shows the layout of the newsroom in more detail. You can see the news desk at the heart, with everybody involved in bringing in content and deciding where to deploy our correspondents and crews seated together in that double horseshoe or magnet for domestic and global journalism. And then the output teams fan out from the central desk. This speeds up how we can make decisions on breaking stories and helps everyone work together, driving the story, getting the right pictures, the guests, and so on. And there are also seats for journalists from our social media team. More on that later. The production teams can therefore respond quickly and collaborate with one another across radio, television, online, domestic and global. But it's important to note that they are still organised to focus on a particular platform and output. So the BBC News at 10 team, the team that does the front page of the website, the Radio 4 6 o'clock news for example. We make sure that at the point audiences actually get our news, they're getting great television, great digital content, great radio. Shared stories told in the right distinctive way for them. And we're organising ourselves like this, not just because it makes a neat diagram, but because it's built on what we know about our audiences. BBC News reaches a very broad audience, 80% of the British public. That's our job. All licence fee payers deserve to get news from us. And globally too, we strive for global breadth. Our first task is to be accurate and fast. This slide shows some of the services where we do that, where audiences can get the news as soon as they want it, as they want it, where they want it, whether it's a ticker on television, a radio headline at the top of the next hour, a tweet, a text, live video. You can see here our BBC breaking Twitter feed, 
as a snapshot of our live page format from the website where we bring together the latest live copy, text and video on a breaking or developing story and some of our live television coverage taken during the coverage of the English riots last year. Breaking news and being bang up to date is important to audiences and to us. We're proud, for instance, of being first by more than half an hour on the police officer shootings that I showed you previously because of our local news gatherers on the ground. You can see the appetite for the very latest news in how people turn to our news channel, but also in the growth of an explicit service for breaking news, Twitter. We launched our breaking news text service as an experiment in 2009. It really took off in 2010, and last month we passed the 4 million follower mark. So it's a steep curve up. But does this mean that we no longer rely on traditional forms of journalism, and that these millions of people who look at BBC breaking on their mobile may not also want something longer, shaped, considered? The two things are not mutually exclusive. Let's consider the figures. BBC television news is watched by around 34 million people in the UK each week. BBC radio news listened to by around 28 million a week. And the BBC news website is accessed by more than 38 million unique browsers each week in the UK and abroad. Our global services together have a weekly reach of nearly 240 million across all languages and services. So millions following on Twitter is great but it's still comparatively small when we compare the performance of BBC Breaking to other platforms. You can see that Twitter's growing healthily at the bottom there, and in terms of sheer numbers, people are still tuning in much more to the main television news. To be honest, and this may not be something all of you or true digital natives want to hear, not everyone's on Twitter. Most people haven't actually found space for it in their lives yet and not all of them have the technology and the power of television and radio and appointment to view and to listen remains as compelling as ever with catch-up services such as the BBC iPlayer giving people more control over what and how they watch and listen this is particularly true when there's a big news story big news means big audiences let's look at last year by all accounts, a very, very busy year. On the news at 10 on BBC One, the peak audience for 2011 was on Tuesday the 9th of August, the most critical day of the English riots. That was the same for BBC News Channel, our website and mobile services. Other peaks you'll see on the slide are for fighting in Libya, the Royal Wedding and the Japanese earthquake and tsunami. Even on digital platforms, it's the considered story the write-through on the front page, as much as the unfolding coverage on our live pages that people seek in big numbers. But don't get me wrong, we're very alert to new platforms. Dig a little deeper into the slide about how Twitter compares to television, and you can see the momentum behind digital, and the way younger people really are consuming news in a different way. And I would love to hear at the end of this lecture whether that holds true for some of you. Now, this slide looks a bit complicated, but let me take you through it. Your students, you should be used to important slides. Um, it shows the claimed use of television, online, radio, and newspapers for news among all the different generations, back right to those who were born after the end of the First World War. You can see that the internet is now the most used platform for news for generations born after 1970. And almost every age group is more likely to use the internet for news in 2010 compared to 2007. 
but that rise has been particularly large for people now in their 30s. If you look at the meeting point of all the lines, it forms a nexus where digital is having the greatest impact, really changing the mix of news sources for younger people. And in my view, this shift is forever. That's why in New Broadcasting House, we're organising ourselves to make sharing content across all these platforms much easier. But in the end, our most important job is to concentrate on doing the right kind of journalism in the first place and then sharing it. So what kind of journalism do our audiences want and how is digital changing audience expectations of what they need and value from us? In the video, I showed you some of what we're proud of. One of the arguments made about the digital age is that with an explosion of information, with the power of internet search, with the ability of anyone anywhere in the world to post pictures or video and share it, the role of traditional media organisations, indeed the role of the professional journalist, shrinks. If people can follow breaking news from multiple sources on their mobile phone, who needs traditional broadcasting? Who needs the trusted journalist to take you through what's happened? Many of you here are students of journalism and may be familiar with the debate about the role of storytelling, of the article or the report, the thesis even that the story is dead, that the finished article is a luxury, a byproduct, something done as a roundup at the end of a day's posting and tweeting. Well, I, like many others, would argue that the story is very much alive, a very deep human impulse that's not going to vanish overnight. And I'd like to go through the evidence from the audience to support this, and then turn to the ways in which storytelling does nonetheless change in the digital age. What we know from audience research is that people want us to help them make sense of the world, that the world has never felt more complex. Though I expect that's something people have been saying forever. The end of the Roman Empire or the shift of Copernicus and Galileo can't have felt exactly straightforward. But we do live in an extraordinarily newsy and changeable world. The global economy since 2008, coalition politics in the UK, big changes to our health and education systems, the rise of China, India, the other BRIC countries, global environmental change, I don't need to go on. The skill of the journalist lies not just in selecting facts but putting them in context. Why is it relevant? What does it mean for you, your family, your finances? When the NHS bill was passed earlier this year, audiences told us that they were very interested but also very confused which is why we had that day of coverage with Branwyn Jeffries at its centre. On the economy, audiences have been telling us for months that they are desperate to understand, but that the stories are complex and full of jargon. How many of you would be happy explaining quantitative easing to a friend in the pub? I mean, I know this is the LSE, but, you know, really comfortable. <laughs> or even something less complicated, inflation, GDP. Our specialists work really hard at using plain language, it's the same with science, and you saw how David Shookman and the magical pictures of Cameron and Duncan Stone helped to bring the difficult subject of climate change alive. Then we have the Arab uprising, and in particular at the moment, Syria. Ian Panel, Lise Doucette, Jeremy Bowen and others, and their cameramen and women and producers are tenacious. These journalists are brilliant at putting a story together in just a few moments, capturing what they see, but also drawing on their expertise and experience to put events in context and make judgments about why they matter. We know how effective their reporting can be in helping draw audiences in. Here's an interesting example. Paul Wood with his cameraman Fred Scott were reporting from Homs earlier this year. They were the only Western reporters there at the time and their reporting was extremely powerful. Before that week, the audience research we do reported that interest in Syria was fairly low. 
After that week, it rose considerably. The Paul Wood effect, the power of excellent storytelling, no doubt both. We don't claim a monopoly on great reporting and storytelling, of course. Al Jazeera's reporting of the Arab uprising has been powerful. Alex Crawford of Sky News did outstanding reporting from Libya last year. ITN's Bill Neely is a consummate storyteller. Not to mention the great political broadcasters, Channel 4's Gary Gibbon, as well as our own Nick Robinson. Their work is a precious part of our democracy and an open media. And so far I've been talking largely about daily news, but of course current affairs reporting on radio and television is also a powerful and important way of challenging power and telling vital stories. BBC Panorama's investigations, for instance, Undercover Care last year, which revealed the abuse going on at Winterbourne View Care Home, or the investigative work of File on 4 on Radio 4, and many other broadcasters and newspapers too. Current affairs takes commitment, it takes time, it takes legal support, and investment sometimes in stories which may in the end come to nothing. But it's important, and the BBC's record on behalf of audiences is a demonstrable sign of the benefits of public service professional journalism. I'm finding it fascinating to see how that sense of investigation and long-form storytelling is slowly beginning to take hold on digital platforms too. Sites like Byliner or Longreads allow you to collate your own choice of articles, build your own magazine, and the tablet is proving a natural home for a longer read or a longer watch. Foundations, as well as news organisations, are investing in investigations, and needless to say, our own online magazine is something I'd heartily recommend. There's something exciting and beautiful about digital. This is an interactive feature that we did called Race to the Bottom of the Ocean that audiences can explore for themselves. It was the result of Rebecca Morell's journey following the film director and explorer James Cameron on his mission to get to the very bottom of the Mariana Trench, the very deepest part of the sea. She followed him to Guam and worked with our digital teams to produce this, and it's wonderful. And for me, I've never actually read below so many folds to really understand the power of a digital graphic. Then there are ways that the user can sometimes more personally interact this is one that we produced during the Olympics where you could type in your own height and your weight and you could find out which Olympic athlete you most resemble. And I am a South Korean fencer. Um, more seriously, perhaps, this is an example from uh, the LA Times. Exploring data in the public interest. This is crime mapping. You can type in your zip code and it shows you where crime is most prevalent in your neighbourhood. We've done this on the UK web... Yeah, very useful. We've done this on the UK website too at the BBC as this kind of crime uh, data is beginning to be more available in, in this country. And US Today had a great example recently where schools could put in their location and see the level of pollution nearby. It's not just mainstream broadcasters and press organisations doing this. The Emmy Award for New Approaches to News and Documentary Programming recently was won this year, not by a broadcaster, but by a think tank. There's an idea for you, Charlie. The Council on Foreign Relations, who presented a uh, work on Iran. Digital graphics lend themselves to explaining complex structures. A week ago, uh, a few weeks ago rather, we, we went inside Camp Bastion with a really revealing 3D look at how the coalition base in Helmand province actually works. This was after the, uh, the attack by the Taliban. And it had an added feature. You could put in your postcode and it shows you relative to where you live exactly how big Camp Bastion is. I live in West London and I was staggered to see the camp cover a large chunk of London and it really brought home to me its scale. 
These are all good examples of how we're creating genuinely digital content, presented in a way that works on digital platforms. Digital means that audiences can create their own personal journeys through the news and follow their interests. But the foundation stone is still what underlies all our journalism, great storytelling in words, sound, pictures, art and design. It encourages all our news teams to work together, which brings me back to what I was saying at the beginning about how we've organised ourselves in the new building. A few months ago, I brought our digital and television graphics teams together under a new editor of visual journalism so that we can create a multi-talented team to tell stories in these new ways. Whoops, sorry. No, that's right. Uh, taking the best storytelling and design talent and using it imaginatively and creatively. None of this journalism anymore is done in isolation. New technology means that everybody can now, if they wish, engage with the news and contribute and comment in completely new ways, send in pictures or video. We have a team that works to analyse and verify this material. Whether it's harrowing footage from Syria, and as part of my role I sometimes have to assess these images so I know just how tough this can be, or hearing from the audiences its experiences of GCSE grading, our social media team is embracing these contributions. They now sit on that news desk at the heart of the newsroom, and as they comb the emails and texts and tweets sent to us, they're doing so with the impartial and critical rigour that they bring to any story source. Digital also allows our audiences to comment, debate and interact on social platforms around our content, which helps us understand the range of views on any topic. So while our core purpose remains the same, there's no doubt that digital has changed how we express it. Changed for some of our most experienced broadcast correspondents too. Many now do a daily blog and tweet as well as broadcast. Economics editor Stephanie Flanders, business editor Robert Peston, Gavin Hewitt in Europe, Mark Mardell in the States. And I'm sure lots of you follow our Middle East editor, Jeremy Bowen, at Bowen BBC on Twitter, as well as watch him on the news. Recently, we tried something different. We invited audiences from Twitter, Google+, Facebook and the website to ask him questions, which he then answered in a live hour of Ask Bowen BBC on Twitter. A wide-ranging list of questions came in. His thoughts on the Arab Spring, to what event in the last century he'd have liked to cover. Twitter's something many of our correspondents have taken to, some of them perhaps too well, can't get them off it, but it's become important for their journalism. Lise Doucette recently described Twitter as like a personal news channel. I felt connected in a totally new way. But she also emphasised the importance of the professional eyewitness journalist and how in the end you keep audiences' trust. The best way, she said, is to be there, on the ground, face to face, feeling the heat, eating the dust, talking to everybody who can help clarify a complicated story. That's journalism. The BBC's second charter in 1936 said that the corporation should provide a means of information, education and entertainment. And that remains our mantra to this day. Of course, the entertainment bit has never been quite so fitting for news as for drama or music. So I used to have my own version. Inform, educate and engage. In other words, you need to make sure your programmes and websites are appealing and engaging, otherwise you'll never actually reach the audiences you're trying to serve. But I'm now shifting to a new formulation. Inform, educate and connect. By that, I mean that we're no longer just trying to draw people in. We're also more confidently reaching out on social networks and the full range of distribution platforms that work for audiences. And we recognise that some of our journalism is done in partnership with the wider world. 
It's another BBC mantra that the audience is at the heart of what we do. And while innovation and attractive presentation can help bring in new people, we know the foundation of our relationship is we provide them with news they can trust. In a complex world, a world of many sources, we provide a still point in the swirl. Accurate and partial news. And these values are not unique to the BBC, but they're especially precious to us, enshrined in our charter and carved in our hearts. Our independence gives us very strong ground on which to stand when we call power to account, challenge those in authority and seek to make sense of the world. This slide shows that we are regarded as the most trusted news source in the United Kingdom and we also score highest for accuracy and impartiality. Even for people who don't turn to us for their main news source, we rate highest for trust. In the era of agenda-driven journalism and news media based on a point of view, all of which has its place, don't get me wrong, and an age of niche and specialist media, the impartiality of the BBC draws people, whether it's as a first or a second source of news. There's a debate that you often see in the press here that the BBC is too dominant. We are the market leader on television and radio, and the BBC website as a whole, not just the news part, is the fourth most popular website in the UK after Google, Facebook and YouTube. But let me give you another figure. In terms of all the television news broadcast in the United Kingdom, we're responsible for just 27% of the hours broadcast, but 72% of the consumption. We know that people are making an active choice to watch what we do, and the reason is because they trust it. Nor is BBC News a single homogenous thing. There's an internal plurality to what we do. The way we tell a story about Afghanistan, for example, will be different on Newsround, on our children's services, or Radio 1's Newsbeat, which has a strong young military following, or on the Radio 4 News, or the regional news in Cornwall. Across what we do, there's a breadth of agenda and a range of voice. Trust, audience focus, impartiality, and independence. These values have always been with us. What changes is the form of their expression. Part of trust is that audiences can get the news from us when and how they need it. Part of impartiality is keeping a very close eye on matters of controversy and public debate, so that as knowledge changes or the range of views shift, we're able to reflect that. We recognise that technology and audience expectations have changed in ways which have made the world more open, with interaction more possible and immediate. So what I've tried to do today is just sketch out for you what's new and exciting about BBC News, but I've also talked about what's old and exciting too. The digital world changes how audiences get our news. It changes how they interact with what we do, how they contribute, how they personalise, how, if they want to, they can bypass us, though in the end not many do. But in this fragmented world, good journalism still matters. The audience hunger is still there. People tell us they want it and they turn up when we provide it. Our challenge for the next five years is to do this storytelling in digital as well as in traditional formats, making our journalism available through all the new platforms available to us, but still grounded in the traditional values of what we do best. Thank you very much. Right. Um, we've got plenty of time for some questions. Thank you very much for that, Mary. Um, I think we all want to sort of go down there and have a look, don't we? But I don't think, I don't think we all ought to go as one. Uh, it gets slightly crowded down there. Um, 
Get your questions ready. I just want to ask a couple of questions mm -hmm. while you catch your breath. Because um, you told a wonderful narrative there about how you know, the physical arrangements changed. You know, I love the, the beautifully symmetrical newsroom. Wait till we put some people in there. Yeah, when you get the plant pots. <laughs> yeah, and, the newspapers. Yeah. And That's right, and the whiskey bottles. Um, and I could see absolutely that, you know, the journalism is great, and then on the new platforms, you, you're definitely pulling in people. The, the bit that intrigues me, though, is, is wh when you've got those journalists, and, for example, they're on Twitter, um, what do they tell you, or what do you sense are the kind of pressure points in the way that it changes their journalism? In, and it could be around impartiality. I mean, when I listen mm -hmm. to... Um, Evan Davis on the Today programme. Evan Davis is an economics journalist who now presents a major news programme the, on the radio. And he's definitely saying things that he would never have said on screen. Sometimes it's just little jokes. But he's definitely doing things differently. He's asking questions, for example. Mm. He's saying to people, what do they think? What do you think of the kind of... Spell out a little bit more what oh, you think of the kind of risks or you know perhaps just opportunities yeah. that you know, what do you worry about yeah. what do your fellow what do your fellow yeah. editors worry about when you when you see them taking to twitter yeah um no it's a really good question and like most things and most innovations it has real opportunities and it also has risks so the opportunities as i was you know trying to convey there is that uh, for some of our journalists it really makes them feel very very connected in a very immediate way to people who have an interest in a story or an interest in an issue that's you know dear to their hearts and it's brilliant for debate and it is brilliant sometimes exactly that thing you know journalists will sort of pose a question or say I'm going to be looking at this topic tomorrow I'm going to be interviewing so and so later today you know what do you want me to ask them that sense that one can draw the kind of wisdom of the audience into uh, into their own journalism and, and make that part then of their, their professional assessment of, of what they're going to do. Um, but the risk is that it's uh, a short form medium and so that makes it on the one hand very kind of easy and, and quick as a kind of facility to it. But as any of you who are studying journalism or any written medium will know, uh, you know short form is, is brilliant for impact but you can lose nuance, you can lose detail, you can lose the subtlety of, of a story. Um, it's the same actually as writing a good headline or, or a you know, TV, television ticker, um, but there's a, such a speed to it. And we've, we've found, you know, we, we've, we've found that it really does take as much kind of craft and good writing skill to, to write well on Twitter as it does on any other platform. The other thing, of course, is this business of, of, of speed, and, and it can have a kind of in, a feel of informality to it. But what, we, what, we, what we've done as you know, time has passed, and we've all got used to this new platform, um, is work with all our journalists and just explain that really it's no different from being live on any other platform. You know, we, I often find this, there's a new innovation and people think, oh my goodness, it's completely different, we need a whole new set of rules, we need a whole new way of dealing with this, the world has changed completely. And actually you end up finding that you are grounding the practice in the same good old stuff. So, you know, being on Twitter is like being live on the radio or being live on the television. 
And in the end, we really, really, you know, foster the sense, don't tweet anything that you wouldn't be happy to say on air. And our other mantra is, think before you tweet. Um, <laughs> and most of them do, most of the time. Um, but if they did, and, yeah. they, and they got it wrong, um, there's definitely a latitude that wouldn't. This may be a good thing, you know. Yeah, I, I think, well, I think there's a possibly a latitude about some things, but not other right. others. In that I think there's definitely a latitude of, of, of tone and informality that, you know, actually you might not use live on air. Um, but, you know, there isn't latitude about accuracy, impartiality, you know, reflecting well the, the values of, of BBC journalism. And when, as occasionally happens on anything, you know, a human being slips up, Twitter's no different from anywhere else. You know, if we, if we are inaccurate on air or on Twitter, we will get a correction out as rapidly as we possibly can. You know, if someone does something inappropriate, we will apologise as quickly as we can and kind of move on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in, in the end, it is both different and also the same as what else, everything else we do. And then just on the other side of it, um, you know, you've got, you showed the graphs where you're, you know, you're four million followers on Twitter, and every program does say, please let us know what you think, and you've got comment fields. Does that change your journalism at all? I mean, because you've sort of said, look, we're doing this lovely stuff that we've always done, and it's still marvellous, and yet we're much more connected. If it was that connected, wouldn't it be somehow changing things a little bit? I don't know how, but story selection or presentation or the emphasis you might give to something, I don't know. Yes, I mean I showed you, you know, inevitably, because it's, you know, I showed you, so I played you some television, and I, I played you some of our great television packaging from some of our uh, great television bulletins as a sort of sample of the kind of stories and, and the kind of uh, storytellers that we have. Um, but I, I was trying to get across that all these people are doing that, but they are also doing that in the context of what they do for our website, or indeed a blog, or some of them, you know, also on Twitter. And uh, I think where where it really does make a difference, and, and this would be true if you talk to David Shukman, actually, or some of our other specialists in our health and science cluster, for instance, that through um, some of uh, some of the interactive platforms, or, or specialist websites, or their own blogs, they build a sense of a community with other experts, um, you know, specialists in a particular field who are a real source of comment and insight to them. And, you know, it, it, it may not be immediately visible in the final kind of piece on the 10 o'clock news, but actually what they are doing is in the context of a journalist who is connected to a community of people who are interested and, and you know, share an expertise and often we're more expert about a, a particular Specialism. I think the other thing I'd say, which kind of also reinforces this point about, you know, everything is new, but also it's always been the same, is that um, digital and our interactive platforms certainly foster and make very possible and very rapidly possible comment and, and debate. But, you know, the radio phone-in did that and has done that for decades. So the other, the other way that digital services do influence and inform our journalism is they are a very good means for us to take the temperature on stories, to take the temperature of debate, range of views. You know, we'll, we'll still make our own assessments. And of course, we will also bear in mind that sometimes 
you know, whereas there are people engaging digitally. For many, many of our, our audience in the UK, you know, a large number of those licence fee payers, they definitely aren't on Twitter. They may not even have an internet or certainly may not, even if they do, do much interaction. So it, it's a very useful piece of intelligence that we add into all the other intelligence about opinion and range of voice and therefore yeah. how we might address the story. Yeah. Okay. Team, there's uh, any questions? Um, let's start right in the middle there. Okay, you mentioned uh, the BBC's founding principles to educate, inform, and entertain. And I think the BBC still, BBC News still gets that generally right, that kind of balance between those principles. But can you say anything about the challenges you're facing? Because across the rest of the media landscape in the UK, we seem to have a growing trend towards entertainment and celebrity news. And that does seem to be slipping into the BBC and some kind of channels, such as BBC Breakfast, which seems to be increasingly a magazine programme. Um, and I wondered whether you are agonising over this and resisting that trend. <laughs> the agony. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, so it's a really interesting question. I mean, and, and also the, yeah. the in a, just to add on, it does in a way the sort of. The Twitter staff, for example, doesn't that encourage the sort of celebritisation of your your staff, charming as they are? <laughs> um, okay, how to tackle this one? Um, no, it's a, it's a really interesting question, and obviously, you know, we are part of a context and a media landscape which is, you know, national and, and indeed international. But again, we we're very clear when we ask our audiences what they want from us. You know, they want they want a broad news service, and that does include. Um, you know, news, sport, business, topical stuff, and some, you know, arts and ends news. So the, the, the kind of, you know, the most newsy and what seemed to us the, the most relevant or important of entertainment news stories will make it onto our coverage, definitely. But we also know from the audience that you know they want that and then they want us to move on. They, we are not a sort of celeb gossip service. They've got plenty of places to go for that, and that's fine. That's not what they want from us, and so that's not what we are providing. And you mentioned breakfast, breakfast news, and you know breakfast news is, is part of the whole stable of, of news programmes that we provide for BBC One, and it is a news programme, but it's a morning show, and so it has a slightly lighter, you know. <coughs> not lighter actually, a more informal feel and a, and, and a more of a topical magazine mix. So, but in there too, you will find Syria, you know, you will find the Arctic, you will find the global economy. Um, as the programme kind of morphs towards the daytime schedule, you know, it, it, it softens a bit. Um, but the, but the, you know, we're, we're very clear. So in that way, no, I don't agonise about it. I'm, I'm very clear what our role is, which, yes, some entertainment news, which is part of a broad topical news offering, but not a celebrity. Celebritization, was that the word you yeah. used? Yeah. That's a big um. word that I learned when I came here. Yeah. Yeah. And funny enough, your breakfast offering is actually doing better than the commercial offering, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Extremely. Is, yeah. Um, other questions here, please. Let's go to the front. Uh, accounts lecture where I would 
realise I'm not an accountant. Um, the, 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 the coming together of us all together in this, in this new building was a decision you know, taken a few years ago and planned. And yes, it costs money to build this, but actually we are spending money so that we can save money. We are, by bringing lots of teams together from different buildings around London into the new building, we have been able to end the lease of Bush House. We are in the process, the BBC is in the process of selling off large swathes of the television centre in West London and indeed some other buildings around the, the London estate. Um, the, the way that this is financed, you know, over, over time pays for itself in terms of any rental, you know, purchase of any building. So, I mean, you're right, you know, it kind of, it, does, it looks and it is a wonderful, exciting new building, but actually it's done in a way which enables us over time to save money on our property portfolio and all the different places that we work. And managing the cuts between journalists actually making news and the managers that are not on the field. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, you, you, you can't actually just have people in the field because, you know, they do need a few people to manage them. Um, but actually, across the BBC, not just the case for news, but across the BBC, uh, you know, managers and all the other services, the professional services, have taken a bigger proportion of savings than the core journalists, whether they're the, you know, in, in the field literally, or the, the main the main journalists working in, in the production and newsrooms. Okay. Over there, first, yeah. Um, you mentioned that social media is important to reach young people and um, get them to watch more quality programs and listen to more quality programs. Have you got any evidence that this is happening? Um, uh, well, I, one of the things I think was interesting, when social platforms started, we saw them as a way where people could send stuff to us. And then all of us have become aware that actually they are in effect a distribution platform as well. They're a distribution platform where you then engage with the people you're distributing to, but they are a distribution platform, whether that's Twitter or you know Facebook or YouTube or any of these services. In one way on those platforms, you know, all you can do is kind of put it out there and it's up to people whether or not they choose to come to it. Um, but we're, we are finding that with all those services, whether it's Twitter or some of our um, programming service uh, sites on, on Facebook, you know, the followers are following and the friends are becoming friends. Um, we also have, uh, you know, for digital, one of the things that's interesting about digital, you get a much more immediate sense of what people are clicking on or consuming or, or watching, and we get a good sense of, of what it is that people actually want. And it's a real mix. You know, of course, sometimes it is the really wacky piece of video that kind of shoots to the top and goes viral and da da But it's also, the, it's also you know, the, the best of, of, of kind of serious journalism. And this, this week, for instance, on our website, we ran a really beautifully written piece about China by Carrie Gracie, who's one of our correspondents and presenters who spent a lot of time in China. And she's done a program for Radio 4, which is, you know, our sort of high-minded radio uh, service in the UK. I think we could say that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but she also wrote it up and we produced it as, as a, as a um, feature online. And, you know, it did incredibly well. It was in our top ten most read yesterday. Um, which really proves to me this point that, that if you 
do the right content. And if you do work to make it you know, engaging and enticing for people, you don't have to compromise on the fundamental principles of, of good storytelling. And that, you know, the other thing I often say to my news teams is um, don't, never overestimate the knowledge of our audience, but never underestimate the intelligence. And actually, you know, again, as I say, all our research, people are hungry to understand the world. So, you know, we work on the ways and the means that you do that, but when we, when we get it right, we do see that kind of journalism do very well on, you know, Twitter or Facebook or, or, or other digital platforms. Will it actually draw young people to a quality TV program and to a quality radio program? Well, you know, time will tell. But, but in a way, we well, we're beginning to see it, but we don't, we don't know with all of, all of them. I mean, but, but I challenge that back to you. Do we have to bring them to the telly or the radio if the digital content is good enough in the first place? I mean, what we, what we do know is you see changing pattern. You know, I'm sure this is true in this room. I, I don't know how many of you actually buy a newspaper or kind of sit down every night and watch the 10 o'clock news or, you know, but I bet all of you are consuming and reading and watching really kind of interesting and interesting, I hope you are, a kind of interesting range of, you know, video and articles as well, perhaps, as listening to the radio or telly, although you might be watching telly on your tablet. So Let's quickly find yeah. out. What's your main source of news? Is it, first of all, put your hands up if your main source of news, you know, the, the thing you get your main dose of obvious news stuff. Is it, put your hands up if it's the TV, TV news. Is that where you get your main source of news? Come on, really? Well, I, I, I did well to get out of... <laughs> I did well to get out of TV news, didn't I? Uh, how about... Got, no, 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 I mean... Come to that. Whose main source of... And I'm not talking about the, who creates the news, your platform I'm talking about. So, is your, so we've had TV. What about your main source of news is... Uh, news websites. How about people that you get your main source of news through social networks? You know, Facebook or Twitter will tell you stuff, and then you. Okay, that's radio. Radio, anybody? And how, and how about remember those newspapers? Those newspapers? <laughs> right, it'll be the New York Times. Yeah. I think that's very helpful. Uh, very just put, put your hands up by the way as 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 everyone seen hands up if you've seen a bbc journalism you know you've seen video from by the bbc tv that's good how many of you how many of you just read it you've not seen how many read bbc online wow you should start charging that's right another question let's go right to the back please yeah, yeah. Um, 
if you look at the sort of team as a whole, you know, the newsroom as a whole, and there are a lot of people, it, it's pretty half and half. It's interesting to me, though, the level below me, I'm a bit, you know, I'm trying to bring them on, I'm trying to bring them on, and actually the level just below me is quite male again. It's odd, my level's quite female, and it's quite, but, you know, the overall mix um, is, is good. Uh, you... One of the questions that people do ask about specifically sometimes is about journalists in the field, especially foreign correspondents. Um, and it probably, you know, is the case that there are more male foreign correspondents than female. That said, there are some very, very brilliant women, and, you know, some of them you saw just there. Um, around ethnicity, it's changing, you know, but it's not kind of there yet and again it's, it's changing in the in the broadcast journalist the senior broadcast journalist it's taking a, a while to, to feed through up to, to my level um, but you know the, one of the good things about the BBC you know truly and I can say this because I've, I've kind of lived through it we have good policies we're a public service organisation we have good policies and actually by and large as a culture the people who want to work there are pretty you know open minded kind of people who just, you know, very focused on, on what it is we're all there to do, and that means it's pretty merit meritocratic. Do you accept you might have a diversity problem around, well, certainly around sort of social class, that uh, the BBC has is a particularly, you know, middle class, well-educated, southern... What the BBC as a whole, or well, no, especially I mean, journalism? I mean, it's not just the right, BBC. No, no, it's, no, no, it's, and I mean, you're yeah, right to mention it in the context stop. of, of yeah. you know, diversity has many shapes and sizes. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, it, funnily enough, I think and this is more a question about Britain and British culture. It was probably it, the, the BBC, like many, many organisations, the professionalisation of journalism probably mm. means that compared to the you know 50s, 60s. 70s, the backgrounds of people who come in, you know, for a while got a bit narrower. Yeah. Although actually, again, now we're doing a lot of work on that. We do a lot of work with media colleges, and we do a lot of work around the UK. Um, and you know, part of the reason we have a, a big approach at the moment of making sure that you know, not all of the BBC is in London, and not all the BBC News is in London, and we have bases in Salford, and of course also Glasgow and, and Cardiff and, and Belfast. And you know, all of that is part of helping ensure that we have. Uh, you know, we have we have diverse diversity to, to people who work with us. Okay, let's take some other questions quickly. Um, let's zoom over to the our side. Yes, you at the back. Yeah. Um, we have seen the wonderful online content you just showed us, but I assume that if I'm correct, uh, the frontline journalists may need to contribute that. It means that it requires uh, new skills or even more work with that. So this is the process. <coughs> Yes, I mean we do, and we, we've we've needed to because you know some some of the people that you saw there began as just a television correspondent or just a radio correspondent and have first of all conquered both those you know broadcasting platforms, but also now um, uh, you know digital as well and, and the skills in, in writing and, 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 and longer form storytelling as well and. It won't surprise you to know that some have kind of made that journey much more easily, and it won't surprise you to know that you know people we're we're bringing in now as younger journalists have a kind of facility already across lots of uh, 
lot, lots of uh, platforms and, and, and kind of craft techniques. So yes, it's been about training. Uh, it's about you know working in the early days. It was about working with the sort of champions and the ambassadors for that, and then with others allowing them to come along at a slower pace. It's about making sure um, you know these, these people you see are rare, sometimes they are alone, but they're rarely alone. They usually have a producer who will now be a multi-platform producer with them. Um, so you know the, the the level of skills has has definitely grown. One of the things that I talk about a lot, though, and I emphasise with people who are uneasy about that or find it difficult, is that, you know, in the end, what's, it, what's journalism about? You should go into journalism if you are curious about the world and you want to tell stories. And so if you keep that as your driver, finding stuff out and then wanting to convey it to audiences and then think about the different techniques you might tell that story for different platforms, it really helps. You know, you don't just have to be a television journalist or a radio journalist or digital. You're a journalist with stories to tell, and you then work and learn the skills to do it across platforms. So in the real world, you still need to face the that line? Yeah, no, indeed. And, and you know, there's no doubt that a, a, a journalist or our small teams, who, if they, if they go out, on a, especially on a kind of big story or a big breaking story or a story that just goes, you know, and it's off for hours and days, they work very hard. But we, again, we have what will often happen is, you know, they may be the first team to get there and off they will go. But our news gathering guys are already thinking, well, how can we get the second team in to take over from them when they've fallen over 18 hours later? You know? um, and we, we work very hard to manage it. One of the things that we have to do, and this sort of goes to your point as well, is to be, um, you know, realistic about what one individual or a small team can do. We have a clear sense of what the priorities are, you know, breaking the story, getting the core facts, providing the content for our most important, most watched or read or listened to output. Some other output is not such a priority. They will find other ways to cover the story. And it goes back also to what I talked about, which is we've, we've created a system and a newsroom whereby with the content, the content that comes in, we can then share it around. So, you know, the, the, the material that David Shookman sends or Ian Panel sends, producers in London can kind of rework it, re-edit it, cut it differently, write about it. So they don't have to do absolutely everything. No. And they can focus on the story. Other questions? Here, yeah, please.
No, I mean, two good questions. Um, I'm, I mean, all, for, you know, for, for all of us uh, making savings, of course we are thinking very hard how to try to do, you know, of course one can have concerns, and then one works very hard to try to overcome those concerns. And actually, I'm no more worried about foreign news than I am about, you know, anything that we do. Again, because coming back to the audience, you know, we, we know it's part of what the audience really values from us. We also have it absolutely enshrined in our charter, in our public purposes. Um, you know, it's part of the reason why Britain, the public, and successive governments go on supporting the BBC and the funding model we have is that, you know, it is important to have an organisation that has that very wide remit of, of news coverage, including <coughs> foreign news. And so, um, you know, it's not to say we'd not have to think hard about how we fund and finance and organise our foreign news coverage, but actually we're as committed to it you know, as ever. There's nothing that's changing about that. Um, one of the things that we're doing as we look across all our services, and this is, you know, helped by the, the move, as we're bringing together the global world service and also the domestic news teams, we are developing correspondents who are truly bilingual. You know, we, sometimes we have had a world service correspondent who, you know, speaks, um, I don't know, you know, Spanish for Latin America and another one who speaks English. Well, we're now trying to recruit and, uh, people who actually can speak both languages so they can report for both, um, uh, which is, you know, begin, beginning to, to, to work well. To your point then about, because of course we, we're not everywhere, we can't be everywhere, um, although we have a you know, good footprint across the world, but of course there are times where we're not somewhere and someone else is, and that someone else might be another news agency, and we, have, we work with a lot of you know, the reputed news agencies. Um, it might be a freelancer, or it might indeed just now be a member of the public with you know, one of these, you know, the phone. And uh, it might also be an organisation that is organised to collect and send content. Um, and you, know, you see that in, in, in Syria as, as well, and many, many other examples. So yes, we are interested in, in material from places that we're not. And what we're thinking about is, it, can, we, can we confirm the story for ourselves? Will this material help us tell a story that you know, we are confident about and that we want to tell. And then it is partly the kind of thing you talk about, which is what our social media team is now very skilled at, is working hard with that kind of content. You know, is it what it purports to be? Is it the right place? Is it the right date? Um, has it been manipulated? What do we know about the people who sent it in? And all of that's very important in us assessing what, you know, we might use or, or, or what not. But you know, the first thing is, is it, are we confident about the story? Is it a story we want to tell? Can this material help us tell it, even while we might be trying to you know, then deploy and send our own team there? share with the audience 
our degree of confidence, and we will also then start to work around it. So occasionally, yes. Okay. Let's, let's try and fit some quick ones, as it were. Fine, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we were talking about you know the speed of the news, especially on social media like Twitter. Mm -hmm. So you were also talking about the audience. So my question is, audience like maybe us in this room, young people, like only consumers from Twitter almost. Uh, we are a lot more able to choose. So I can follow for example BBC News and realize that a correspondent from the Guardian is yeah. actually yep. doing something really good and starting to yep. him. But in this situation, did you guys put in place? Ecology 
that we do have those different models, that you are yes. relatively restrained yeah. and you pick up on all sorts of great stories from the newspapers because they're able to be a bit more yes. partisan and more persistent and more... Yes. No, and it, I mean, it goes back to what I was talking about, you know, about agenda-driven journalism. I mean, broadcasting, broadcasting news in Britain under Ofcom is required to be impartial. The newspapers aren't. Thank goodness. I mean, that's why you get such a wonderful kind of, you know, range of voice and a sort of passion and identity behind different newspapers and their, and their readerships. And it means we have a great kind of plurality across broadcasts and the newspapers in, in this country. And I would agree with you um, that, you know, that, that ecology, that diversity, that mix and that capacity to have within it a really kind of confident and strong range of voice is really important. And the, to your other point, which is about, you know, it, it is really important that we go on having people who are determined to investigate and do what it takes to find out stuff that we need to know about you know, the powers that be. Um, and uh, you know, I, 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 I won't, I don't want the Leveson inquiry to, and I, I don't think he does either, to come up with anything that would, you know, would limit that as a really important part of, as you say, the kind of British. Okay. He wants way. to ask the last question. Uh, let's go for somebody right at the very back. That's only fair. Person right at the very, very back. Yeah, you. Fuck you. <laughs> you are at the back. Shout out. there's a question that lurks behind that, if I can add. Do you think that all this other stuff gets in the way of it? That you're so busy doing beautiful graphics and interactivity that actually the bit where you kick down doors and are rude to politicians and things gets, gets lost? Um, it's a really important part of what we do. And, you know, I was talking to you, as I said, mostly about the sort of daily core news coverage. There's a whole other team and, and department who are focused more on the, the kind of longer form and interrogative and indeed investigative and we have you know Panorama is a really big BBC brand that produces uh, you know really important investigations you know, time, time and time again and even while we have been going through you know savings processes actually again that kind of work is one of the things that we we're all completely signed up to, to trying to protect what, one thing that has happened, which I think is an improvement, is that in the past, you know, five years ago, Panorama would do a great programme, it would go out at, you know, eight o'clock on a Tuesday night, maybe the newspapers the next day would write about it, but if no, you know, if you'd seen it, you'd seen it, and if you hadn't seen it, you hadn't seen it. Now, it will sit on the iPlayer and you can watch it back, but also we, in the news, in the kind of core news uh, room, We'll work with Panorama now to produce a, a short form version of the story, maybe the top line or the kind of key element, and actually spread that journalism right across you know, all the platforms. So in the end, it's reaching a, a, a wider audience. Oh, to your point about whether you know, the, the kind of lovely stuff is getting in the way of that, I, I hope not, and I, you know, I, I, I really, really hope not. What, what, what the lovely stuff is about is trying to make sure that we tell the stories in a way that communicates effectively um, and you know draw, draws people in. 
I do think, though, and I hope maybe some of you in this room, I do think there is a really interesting question, though, about what is current affairs on, the, on digital platforms? You know, what, what is investigative journalism and long-form journalism on, on digital platforms? What does it look like? Who funds it? What does it feel like? You know, what kind of stories? So you guys can go and find out. Okay, uh, so there's your commission for your, at least one or two dissertations. Um, just a quick bit of business before I wrap up. Please make sure you keep across things like the Polis website, because we've got loads of events coming up that we haven't actually told about you about yet. Make sure you are on your LSE emails so you get Moodle announcements. So we've got, obviously there's the Tuesday talks, and next week we've got a fantastic uh, guy who's a columnist for the Times. He used to write speeches for Tony Blair. You may remember Tony Blair. Um, so that's a guy we've got next week. So please make sure you keep across all the publicity we do. Make sure that you think about the stuff that we're doing in these lectures. Feel free to use them in the work you're doing here academically. But last of all, please thank Mary for what was an outstanding lecture.